2,000 years after Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, his people are still coming to his table as he commanded us. And it's just such a beautiful sight to see that. This morning, I'm just really thankful for the privilege to come before you and open God's word to you. And I, I like to move around. And as I do that, if you see spots on my clothes, uh, it's not because I had an accident. I guess I did have an accident. But basically, I lack basic motor skills as a 24-year-old male. And I poured scalding hot water all over myself. Uh, so for the past few weeks, Tim has been breaking down the first 18 verses of John. And, and he's been doing this because it's incredibly important that we see Christ, uh, the true Christ. And so for the past three weeks, he's been asking the question, who is Christ? Because it's vital that we get the Christ of the Bible and not some Christ of our imagination. Well, today, with that same sort of idea in mind, I'm going to ask two questions. First of all, I'm going to ask, who is John the Baptist? And if you look on your, your outline, it's really simple. Who is John the Baptist and who are you? We're going to ask those two questions, keeping in mind that the way that we view Christ changes who we are and what we do. And so I'm just going to go ahead and jump into this text because we've got a lot to cover and I'm trying to keep it under an hour and a half uh, so we can get on to the members meeting. The text comes from John 1.19. John 1.19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing so I just want to go into a little bit of background uh, before we really dive into this text headlong. John here, just so we're all on the same page, is not the John who wrote the book. As Tim pointed out a couple weeks ago, uh, the John who wrote the book is John the son of Zebedee, one of Christ's disciples and one of the longest living apostles after Christ's death. John the Baptist is a different John. Uh, and it's actually really interesting how the Gospel of John works. So this was the last of the Gospels to be written. And so John is actually assuming that you already know the other Gospel stories. Because he's not concerned with covering all of the same information that they were. And so he'll say things like, this was before John the Baptist was arrested, assuming that we already know that. So if we want to find out more about John the Baptist, we actually have to go to the other Gospels, which tell us more about him. And in those other Gospels, we find out that John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. We find out that he was the uh, son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we find out that he lived in the wilderness. He dressed in camel's hair. Uh, he ate locusts, which is 
a great delicacy. And he also preached the gospel of repentance, preparing the way of the Lord. And Mark chapter 1 tells us that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem was actually coming out to him. Thousands of people were coming out to hear his preaching. He was the Billy Graham of the desert. And people were going crazy for his preaching and were being baptized in huge numbers. Understandably, this made the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem a little nervous because all these people were going with their devotions to someone that wasn't them. So they send a delegation to find out who this guy is and if he can be trusted with all these people. So they ask him the first question. They say, who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. I don't know about you, but typically when I get the question, who are you? I'm not assuming that the person could possibly think that I'm the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Uh, it's just usually not on that wavelength. And so clearly there's something happening here. And so we want to look at that term Christ and, and what does Christ actually mean? Well, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but until a few years ago, I didn't actually know that Christ wasn't a name. <laughs> Christ is a title that we've given to Jesus. He, he wasn't the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. I'm sure all of you know that, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. But Christ is a title, and it comes from the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means anointed one. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one of God. And so they're coming out here, and they think that he might be the Messiah. There are serious messianic expectations going around in this time period. People knew their Old Testaments. People were looking for the Messiah. And, and, and people did have different ideas about what that looked like. But people really wanted the Messiah to come. Some wanted him to overthrow the Romans. Some wanted him to come and establish uh, the priesthood. And, and, and there were just different ideas going on of what the Messiah would look like. And actually many people during that period were out there claiming to be the Messiahs. And you even have a picture of that in Acts. So they come to John and they say, who are you? And he immediately deflects the glory. He says, I am not the Messiah. John had these huge crowds. He could have easily taken the glory for himself, but he deflects and he says, I am not the Messiah because John knows his role. So we continue this question, who is John? We'll look at the next question. They ask him, they say, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Again, at first glance, this question doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. If you remember, in 2 Kings, Elijah was actually taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So if Elijah's in heaven, it doesn't make sense that Elijah would also be on earth. It's just, you know basic understanding of, of how we exist. And so why would they ask if John the Baptist, who they knew, was Elijah? One option is because of his appearance. Uh, Mark 1 tells us that he did dress in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. 2 Kings 1.8 tells us that Elijah wore a, a, a vest of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And they both lived in the wilderness, Elijah fleeing a pagan king who wanted to impale him, uh, and John the Baptist preaching a gospel of repentance. 
And so there are uh, surface similarities, but that still doesn't explain why they would expect Elijah, the prophet, specifically. What's really neat here is that these people who are coming to him know their Bibles. They know their stuff. So if you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, uh, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible this morning, please grab one of these in, in the pew in front of you and take it home with you uh, as, as a gift from our church because we want uh, everyone to have a Bible. We don't have enough of the pew Bibles to take home. There's free ones in the back. Just kidding. <laughs> we don't have enough of the pew Bibles. There's free ones in the back. <clears throat> Tim said he'd pay for it if you take one of those. No. <clears throat> I'm really sorry. I'm not used to this. That was the Holy Spirit making sure that you were paying attention. <laughs> Just kidding. Where was I? All right. Why do they think he's Elijah? Okay. Take your Bibles. Turn to the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, not Malachi, but Malachi. It's right before Matthew. So turn back to the beginning of Matthew and then go back one more page. And go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Love the sound of pages. Okay, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's a lot to get into here. I'm just going to point out two things. It's a sermon in itself. First of all, the Lord is saying, before I come, I will send my messenger. Okay, that's number one. I'm sending my messenger. Secondly, and the Lord, whom you seek, the Lord, so we're connecting Messiah here and Lord. The Lord, God whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Does that sound familiar? Did the Lord Jesus Christ come to his temple? So we see that Christ is going to return to his temple. And before he does, God is going to send a messenger. And then in the next chapter, we get a little bit more detail. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So these Jewish leaders are expecting the Messiah. And they're expecting an Elijah figure to come because they know their Bibles. Excuse me. But what does John say? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. This is kind of puzzling. uh, Because some of you are astute readers of your Bible. You've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you know that Jesus says that John is Elijah. And so it seems that we've come to a difficulty in the text here. And what are we to do? So I just want to take a couple minutes and, and, and break this down for us. So that we understand what's going on here. Uh, whenever we're reading the Bible, uh, just as Christians, just as sinners, uh, eventually we're going to come to things that we don't understand. Or we're going to come to things that seem wrong. Or we may come to things that we don't like. Or, or things which we think may contradict. Okay? So we have two options when that happens. 
On the one hand, and I call this the undergraduate professor option, uh, on the one hand, we can look at it and say, the Bible's wrong, the Bible's got errors, the, you can't trust it, you can't do anything, and, and, and that was basically my college experience. Um, <laughs> it was wonderful. And so you can say, the Bible must be wrong, and, and when we're doing that, we're placing ourselves in authority over the scriptures. Uh, we're saying that we know better than the very word of God. Now, the other option is what I call the Orthodox Christian option. And this is what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. When we see something in the Bible that doesn't make sense, or when we see something in the Bible that we don't like, we assume that we're probably wrong. <laughs> we assume that we probably don't understand it correctly. Because, why? Because we're sinners. Because we've been corrupted by the effects of sin, and our mind is nothing like God's mind. So this is the option that I would recommend to you as a believer. When you come to something in Scripture you don't understand, trust in the Word and assume that you're in the wrong. It will do you so well. And so we come here, and we know that Jesus says that John is Elijah. And we know that John says, I'm not Elijah. What are we to do with this? Well, first, I'd also like to point out that Christians have known this for 2,000 years, as long as the Bible has existed. And it hasn't been a problem for those in the church. Secondly, I'll say that there are several really plausible explanations for why John would say he's not. The one that I think is probably the most onto it is uh, written by a guy named Don Carson. And he says that it's quite possible uh, John the Baptist didn't fully understand his role. Uh, we'll see throughout this entire thing, John is so incredibly humble that it's quite possible he didn't actually understand that he was coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, as Christ said. And there's certainly a precedent for that in the prophets. All over the Old Testament, people were prophesying about things far better than they ever knew. They think they're saying one thing, and it actually applies to Christ. And, and, and they think they're prophesying one thing, and they're actually speaking about something completely different because God doesn't feel the need to explain every little thing to us. And so it's quite possible that John the Baptist just doesn't fully understand his role here. So he says, I'm not Elijah. So he's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. <laughs> so who is John? The next question they say. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Again, these are really specific questions, with the exception of, who are you? If they had said, are you a prophet, I think he would have said, yes. But they said, are you the prophet? Why are they expecting a prophet? As I mentioned before, these people really know their Bibles. They're the religious leaders of that time. And so they are connecting all of these different messianic prophecies. They are expecting these things to come about because they know the prophecies of the Old, <clears throat> Old Testament. I'm not going to go there, but the prophecy they're actually referencing is Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. When the Lord says to Moses, that behold, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And it's a promise, and it's a promise that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. 
As all these prophecies, with the exception of the Elijah prophecies, uh, all these prophecies about the Messiah, uh, about the Star of David, the scepter not departing from Judah, the branch of Jesse, all of these different figures in the Old Testament, they were expecting all kinds of things. But when Christ came, all of those prophecies coalesced into one figure, the person of Jesus Christ. So they ask him, are you the prophet? I think if most people had been in that situation, they would have been like, well, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I am the prophet. And because I'm the prophet, I know that you've been naughty. And if you want to get on God's good side again, uh, you're going to have to take care of this prophet. <laughs> I'm going to need lots of gold uh, and lots of whatever they were into, uh, goats and a camel for my clothes because uh, this stuff doesn't grow on trees. Well, that's not what John does. John could have easily taken advantage of any of these situations, but he knows his role. And he didn't take credit. Now, most of us are never going to have the opportunity to deflect glory when somebody asks us if we are a prophet to Christ. So how does this sort of apply to us? Well, what do you do when somebody notices Christ in you? What do you do when somebody at work, maybe it's your boss, sees your work ethic and they see how hard you work all the time and they say, hey man, there's something different about you. You work so hard, you always do a good job and you never complain. Or what do you do when somebody notices your marriage, that, that you love your wife so well and your wife loves and serves you so well? What do you do when they say, hey man, there's something different about your marriage? And what do you do when your coworker notices that the crazy customer that comes in and belittles you and derides you, that you still treat them with dignity and respect as an image bearer of God? When they point that out, what do you say? Do you say, thanks, I am awesome, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> or do you say, thanks, to be honest with you, that's not me. If it were up to me, I would have told that woman off. If it were up to me, I would live for myself and my marriage, and I would do the bare minimum to survive in my job. But because I've experienced the love of Christ, I know what it's like to love people who don't respect you. Because I've experienced the love of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, I sacrifice myself for my wife or for my husband because it brings my Savior glory. What would it look like if we took those opportunities when people see Christ in us and deflect the glory to Christ as John deflects glory to Christ? Number one, we would feel pumped because giving God glory feels so great. And secondly, it opens up an opportunity to share the gospel with people when they see how Christ has worked in your life. So at this point, they're getting frustrated. So they say to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. They said, well, then who are you? We've got to give an answer to these people. And John says, I am a signpost. 
He's saying, I am just the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. And that prophecy comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, if if you're looking for it. Isaiah 43. Just to see the humility present here. And he'll continue to show more restraint and more humility. And at this point, the religious leaders have just about had it with him. They turn to him and they say, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? It's kind of like when your wife leaves you for a few hours with a long list of things to do. She comes back and you're sitting on the couch watching TV. The list is still there and nothing's been checked. (laughs) Why are you watching television if you haven't vacuumed the house or made dinner or, or, or whatever? Not that my wife would say that. Um, She's very loving. (laughs) But the tea kettle on their head is just boiling over and it's about to explode. They're saying, then why are you out here? One of the things I love about scripture is that John still doesn't give him a straight answer. (laughs) I I almost wonder if he's messing with him. So how does John respond? He says, you came out here because you, I have a lot of followers and you thought I might be a big deal. But there's someone you don't know. He says, among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's saying, you think I'm a big deal? There's someone whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And some of you have probably heard this, but uh, in the ancient world, untying somebody's sandals was like the lowest of the lows. Masters would not even ask their slaves to do that. It was considered too disrespectful. What humility. Again, he just points to Christ. So we return to this question. Who is John. Well, as we mentioned, John was the cousin of Jesus. He was the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He lived in the wilderness dressed in camel's hair. He ate locusts and honey. He called people to repentance to prepare the way for Christ. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the bridge between Old Covenant and New Covenant, between uh, Old Redemptive History and New Redemptive History. He was predicted at least three different places in the Old Testament. Uh, He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He was specially chosen by God to prepare the way for Christ. And all other prophets could only dream about the Messiah, could only have visions of the Messiah. But John was blessed enough where he got to see Christ with his own eyes and place his hands on him and baptized him. When Jesus was asked about John, he said that among those born of women, basically among any human being, there is none greater than John. And he said that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And John's name and John's ministry is immortalized in the scriptures forever. I say all of that to say, historically speaking, theologically speaking, biblically speaking, John was a really big deal. John had reason 
to boast. And yet when he was asked to give an account for himself, he said, I'm just a signpost. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. And there is one who is coming who is so great that I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. And you look at the other Gospels, and he literally spends his entire ministry deflecting glory to Christ and preparing the way for Christ to come to his people. How is that possible? Where does that kind of humility come from? Well, I don't think John struggled with self-esteem. <laughs> Woe with me. Um, I don't think that John had a low view of himself. I don't even think that John thought he was unimportant. I think he recognized that he had an important role to play. John was humble because he recognized how glorious Christ was. John was humble because when he looked at the face of Jesus Christ, he saw the incarnate Word of God who created everything out of nothing. He saw the prophesied one of the Old Testament. See, true humility is found when we come face to face with the God of the universe. When we come face to face with our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that's why I say the way we view Christ changes everything. Changes who we are and what we do. If we have a big Christ, we're going to have an accurate view of ourselves. And if we worship a counterfeit Christ, (laughs) having humility is going to make no sense whatsoever. When you place your faith in that kind of Savior, it's going to seem really silly to get cocky about being faster than average or being smarter than average or the funny guy or the tall guy or the bearded guy, whatever your thing is, it's going to seem really strange in light of Christ's glory. So we've asked the question, who is John? Now we turn to the question, who are you? Who am I? Likewise, this, the answer to this question, who am I, is determined by our belief in the true Christ. We can't answer this question apart from our relationship to God. When we look at this question, who am I? Ultimately, there are only two answers to the question. You are either a child of God or you are not a child of God. And this relationship to God is determined by our faith in Christ. Either you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he was the anointed one who became flesh and lived among us and lived the perfect life and died a sinner's death and God poured out the punishment for our sins on Jesus Christ and he was resurrected and returned to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Or you believe that Jesus just wants you to feed the poor. Who we believe in makes a huge difference. 
Because those who are redeemed by that Christ are going to seek God's glory above all else. We're going to deny ourselves and point people to Jesus. Like John, we are going to be voices in the wilderness saying that I am not worthy, but he is worthy. We're going to point people to the God of the universe and give him the glory he deserves. So perhaps you're here today and you're not sure that you are a child of God. Perhaps this is the first time you've heard that everyone is not a child of God. Or that not everyone is a child of God. Maybe the idea of deflecting glory from your own achievements to a God that you cannot see is difficult to fathom. And I get that. I do. But as Christians, we've experienced the love of Christ... And we recognize just how amazing he is. We actually find our greatest joy, our greatest pleasure in bringing God the glory he deserves. We actually find our true dignity and our true respect as people by humbling ourselves in light of Jesus Christ. And I have great news for you today. Look at verse 12. John writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The way we view Christ changes everything. Because when we put our faith, when we believe in the name of the Jesus Christ as he is described in the scriptures... John says that Jesus gives us the right to become children of God. Children who deflect glory to the Lord of the universe. And it sounds too good to be true. It sounds just too simple, but I can promise you, it's not. And if you're here today and you do not know Christ, place your faith in the one who loved you so much that he would sacrifice himself for you. Let's pray.